Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, as anti-vaccine mandate protesters continue to gum up downtown Ottawa, many are wondering how long police will let the protesters stay, and how do officials and protesters plan to move forward? And with Aaron O'Toole having one foot out the door, do we think Doug Ford is planning a run for the CPC leadership? Hmm. And former Miami Dolphins coach Brian Flores is suing over alleged racist practices in the NFL. Dr. Richard Norman, postdoctoral fellow with the Future of Sport Research Lab at Ryerson University, will join us to talk about that. All coming up on the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Another day of protest, of course, of some frustrated citizens, a frustrated mayor, and a number of other people that are just saying, what are we going to do to bring this thing to an end? To bring us uh, up to speed on what's going on, uh, please to welcome back to the program, uh, Alex Boudelier, who is the national political reporter uh, for Global News. Alex, great to have you back on the program. I hope you're doing well these days. Oh, we're doing fine, thanks. Uh, very busy up here. There's a lot going on, uh, and we're getting 20 centimeters of snow later this week. So, uh, <laughs> you know, a very a very typical Ottawa February for you. So so the uh, the excuse from the truckers now is, like, we wanted to leave, but we snowed in here. What are we going to do? I, I hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> What are you hearing right now? What's the latest? I, you know, we've been watching the coverage, of course, on Global National over the last few days now. Uh, if there was one word I could use to describe the, the reaction I'm hearing from an awful lot of people, Alex, it's just frustration. Yeah, you know, I think I think whatever the utility of, of the protest was in terms of, you know, people getting whatever message they wanted to get across, you know, I think they're seeing diminishing returns now. Um, you know, you had a former police chief, Charles Bortolo, um, you know, who is not some kind of bleeding heart lefty by any stretch of the imagination, refer to it not as a protest, but as an occupation at this point. Um, you know, I think you're, you're seeing increased frustration and, and really some, some pretty heartbreaking stories of people who, you know, may not have an easy time getting around at the best of times living in Centertown, who have been, you know, basically barricaded in their homes, unable to go to doctor's appointments, unable to get groceries. So, you know, I think even the most you know, sympathetic uh, Canadian to, you know, whatever these these protesters are trying to get across um, would agree that that's probably not, you know, the best way to drive their message home. So, you know, I think we're starting to see diminishing returns. We're also starting to see diminishing crowds. You know, the police estimated last night that there were 50 people on the hill and about 200 supporters um, close to the hill. I'm not sure that I'm I'm not sure about those numbers. Um, It still seems like a considerable amount more. But of course, if you have 250 people and, you know, some serious, you know, trucks and heavy equipment, um, that can still cause quite a disruption. So the protest organizers, um, you know, such as they are, are, you know, promising to sort of dig in and stick around until, you know, all vaccine mandates are lifted. That's not going to happen. Um, so I think people are increasingly, you know, trying to figure out what the end game here is and, and when the city will get back to some sense of normalcy or as close to normal as Ottawa ever is. Is public safety an issue? And the reason I'm asking is I've seen, even on social media, some people saying, look, I want to go downtown for groceries. Can somebody come with me? I mean, they, they're they fearful of, of, of not necessarily, I don't know about fearful of attack, but certainly intimidation, uh, because we've heard stories of, of some of the protesters intimidating some of the citizenry. You know, even people that are walking by wearing masks, I guess, have, have been verbally abused anyway. Is, is, is it shifting now from frustration to anger and maybe even fear? Yeah, I would say certainly for some people, um, you know, we have some colleagues who who live downtown close to the protests and certainly, you know, they've been, you know, nervous about leaving their their apartments, their condos um, to do simple errands by themselves. 
And, you know, we do have, you know, plenty of reports of, you know, people being harassed, some people being actually assaulted. Um, and again, you know, before this sort of turns into painting all the protesters with the same brush, I've walked through that crowd. Um, you know, certainly the majority of people are not out there harassing people or, you know, assaulting people. Um, but, you know, it would be disingenuous to say that, you know, a good portion of the crowd isn't engaged in that type of behavior. You know, I've been threatened to be spit on for wearing a mask. I've been called a commie, um, you know, and that's very at the, you know, sort of not harmless, but, you know, I can take that kind of abuse. We're, we're unfortunately used to it as journalists. But, you know, certainly for normal people trying to go about their normal errands and go to the gym or, you know, go to a restaurant that, you know, after it's been closed for, for months, um, you know, it, it certainly is a, a pretty hairy situation. Uh, the downtown core itself, of course, is, is most impacted by this. So we, we know from your reporting that uh, uh, the, the indoor mall, of course, the Rideau Center Mall right in the middle of downtown uh, is, I guess, pretty much shut down now. Uh, I'm sure other businesses have been afraid to open their doors now uh, because of what's going on. The pressure here seems to be on Ottawa police services at this stage. Uh, I, I know when this whole thing started, uh, I guess late last you know, Friday and into Saturday, uh, there was some sort of suggestion that maybe the military should be called in, and uh, that never did happen. Uh, but there's an awful lot of pressure on Ottawa police to, to be able to handle this thing and to bring this thing to an end. Uh, yet the policy seems to be non-confrontational here right now, just kind of let them do their thing. Uh, is How much pressure is on the police, and, and, and I guess on the same token, Ottawa Mayor Jim Watson, uh, to say, look, it, enough is enough, get these guys out of here? Yeah, I, I do think that there's a lot of pressure on the police, and, it, and it's increasing. Um, you know, the way that, that Police Chief Peter slowly has sort of presented this is that police do not want to sort of go in truncheons raised um, and, you know, forcibly eject these people, um, you know, for fear of escalating the situation. And I think that, you know, based on you know, conversations I've had over the years with public safety experts, I think, you know, there, there is a lot of merit to, to that perspective. But I also think that there is a difference between, you know, going in and forcibly ejecting protesters and, you know, sort of being seen to either, you know, tacitly, um, you know, support, you know, their continued occupation of the downtown. And I think the gap between those two extremes is where you're seeing a lot of the frustration. Um, this is now stretched on for, what are we, in six days, uh, five days? Uh, the days are blurring together up here. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, I think a lot of people are wondering when, uh, you know, when they're going to be able to get back to their lives, uh, especially because our lives have been so disrupted. You know, all Canadians' lives have been so disrupted over the last two years. You know, I certainly was looking forward to getting back to a restaurant and supporting my local businesses. But, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm sticking at home uh, mostly because I have too much work to do. But, you know, I think a lot of people are just frustrated. They want to get out. They want to, uh, you know, live life in their city. And, and a sizable portion of the people who live in Centertown can't do that right now. Um, so, so, yeah, I think that that's where you're seeing sort of the, the increasing frustration. The other question that, that I think a lot of people have is, okay, so things have petered out since the weekend. But, you know, we're coming up on another weekend. Are we going to see people return to the downtown core? And the other aspect is, you know, the police announced two charges last night. Mm-hmm. One, uh, one young man charged for uh, mischief under 5,000. Uh, another uh, man charged for carrying a weapon uh, to a public gathering. Both of those men were from Ottawa, right? So it's not as if, you know, this is some kind of occupying force from other provinces who are causing all the trouble. There's a lot of people who live in Ottawa and around Ottawa and the Ottawa Valley 
who I'm sure are supporting this convoy and are downtown sort of causing mischief in their own city. So, you know, there's, there's a lot of sort of angles to this. Um, it's a very complicated situation. I think a lot of people have some sympathy for the police and the city in trying to manage this sort of unprecedented protest as best they can. Um, but I think that that goodwill is running out, especially, you know, as we see on social media, regular citizens in Ottawa getting, still getting parking tickets, you know, in the downtown core, including rep- uh, reporter colleagues at, at the Ottawa Citizen, getting a parking ticket while, you know, truckers are, you know, parked on Wellington Street in the shadow of the Parliament buildings without any seeming repercussion. Bizarre, bizarre situation. Uh, the arrest story is rather fascinating, too, because the, the, the reporting I've seen on this is those charges, uh, the two charges that have been laid so far, were related to incidents that occurred over the weekend. Uh, and, and I guess the chief slowly is basically saying, look, we don't want to be confrontational. I guess the concern was if they arrested them on the spot when they saw these things happening, probably, as you mentioned, Alex, could have just inflated the whole situation. And, and, and so they've waited a couple of days to lay the charges in situations like that. So I, I think I, that speaks to the police mindset here as to what they want to do. I got to ask you, though, you, you've heard the story this morning now that uh, there's some uh, buzz on social media right now that there's a rally going to be happening in downtown Toronto uh, this coming right. weekend. Is, is there any talk about that with the group that's there? Is this the same group? Are they going on the road here or is this, is this going to be separate and apart? I mean, you know, because we've got this one and of course we've got the confrontation at the Alberta border uh, that uh, that's right. not going away anytime soon too. Yeah. Well, I mean, I would say that, you know, there is a core group of organizers of, of the convoy that, that arrived in, in Ottawa. Um, that said, you know, there are a lot of sort of hangers on and people who have attached themselves to this movement, including some, legit extremist elements, white nationalist elements. Um, but, you know, the organization, while there is a core set, you know, I think that there are plenty of people who are more than capable of, of planning their own demonstrations. I'm not sure if the trucks are going to leave Ottawa uh, and head to Toronto. I doubt it. Um, but that said, I'm sure there are plenty of people in and around Toronto, in and around where, where your listeners are listening from right now, who uh, are sympathetic to the cause and, and might plan a knock-on protest. The Alberta uh, situation is is interesting because um, it does seem a lot more militant, a lot more like a lot more of a, a sort of a dangerous situation than even what we're seeing here in Ottawa. So that's going to be one to watch. You know, we have word of a RCMP officer being assaulted, um, you know, at that crossing. So I, I think that that's one that that definitely has the possibility to get much worse. I know there's some concern as we watched the coverage on Global National last night about that particular confrontation, uh, that it could cause a, a lot of the people in the trucking industry to, to lose whatever support they might have for what's going on in Ottawa. I don't know if there's a whole lot of support within the industry to begin with. You know, as you mentioned, the commerce is going on. I think one of the big takeaways from the Alberta situation is that there are people on the other side waiting to bring their, their trucks here. And they can't get home. And, uh, yeah, you know, so and, and this this is exacerbating the situation. But I guess the other side of that coin is the people that are protesting really don't care. Well, I, I, I think that really drives home the point that this has never been about cross-border trucking. This mm-hmm. has never been about trucker mandates. The express manifesto of the organizers who brought this convoy here was to overthrow the democratically elected government of Canada and to, you know, end all uh, COVID-19 health, uh, public health regulations. This was not about truckers. It never was about truckers. There are sympathetic people who may support truckers, whatever that means, um, who may, you know, not think that the cross-border trucking mandate is, you know, based in, in science. 
you can hold that position. By calling this a trucker protest, I think does disservice to all of the truckers who are working hard to make sure that our grocery stores are stocked, that our pharmacies are stocked, and that people can go on with their lives. So, so I think that the situation where you have truckers who are now stranded by the, by the, pro, the so-called trucker protest itself really drives home that point. Well, it's a very fluid situation, and, and as always, uh, we'll be watching uh, on Global National, of course, so you're reporting too, on uh, globalnews.ca to see what the latest is, because it seems to be changing sometimes by the hour. Alex, thank you mm-hmm. so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. Uh, stay safe, and uh, hopefully we can talk down the road here. Anytime, Bill. Take care. Take care. Alex Boodley, of course, national politics reporter right downtown Ottawa, uh, watching the situation that's going on. And it, it's a fascinating twist on this about what or may or may not happen uh, if there's going to be a, a, another demonstration, they say, in downtown Toronto over the weekend and uh, where they're going to come from and exactly what the ramifications are going to be. But uh, as Alex just mentioned in his reporting, uh, I, if you're thinking they are, they're all going to leave Ottawa and go down to Toronto, not likely to happen. Uh, and the leadership here is, is interesting to try to follow some of the stories here. And, you know, the, the group that we often terms refer to here is one of the organizing groups is Canada Unity. And as you mentioned, it had very little to do with truckers per se. Uh, they want government leaders to either repeal the mandates or resign their lawful positions of authority immediately. That's the mandate. They say, and until that happens, they're not going anywhere. Now, time will tell how many of them are going to hang in there for however long that might take, uh, which could be the 12th of never, because as uh, the prime minister has mentioned and other people have mentioned, they're not going to resign and they're not going to rescind uh, the, the the COVID mandates that are in place. And uh, so it's, it's a stare down right now to see what this is going to go. And there are some legitimate questions about this. If in fact, this is really about truckers uh, being forced to do something they don't want to do, that we need to have that discussion about what the ramifications are. Uh, that uh, it's a small percentage of people that are not vaccinated in the trucking industry. And uh, I don't believe there's been much discussion about any of them losing their jobs. You just can't go across the border. Uh, there are many other things that they can be doing in the trucking industry to go from point A to point B uh, for goods movement at the same time. And as we mentioned, no matter what they do or no matter what they decide to do, this same mandate's in place in the States. So even if they said, yeah, go ahead, you can do it. No, we're not going to enforce this rule. You can't get into the States for the very same reason. And uh, that's not going to change anytime soon either. So it is the way it is. And it's, it's frustrating to watch this. I know the people in Ottawa are getting so frustrated. Uh, we've heard a number of stories over the last couple of days about uh, some encroachment into, into residential neighborhoods with some of the trucks and some intimidation that's been going on. And uh, people are ready to push back. And uh, we just hope that it does not get confrontational uh, because that can only lead to bad endings. And we don't want to see that sort of thing happen. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Maybe the time has come for uh, Conservative leader Aaron O'Toole today as well. Uh, the uh, members of his Conservative caucus are going to be holding a secret vote uh, a little bit later on today uh, to determine whether or not he's going to stay on as leader. Uh, he says he doesn't want to go anywhere, so it's going to be rather confrontational, I would think, uh, trying to hold on to a job like this. Political analysts say that his time could be coming to an end, though, but uh, there's another concern that the Conservatives have to address here, too, and that's where do they go from here? Global's Kyle Benning reports. Last week, O'Toole acknowledged faults during the campaign. But now, about three dozen Conservative MPs have triggered a vote to see whether he will remain as leader. He's in a no-win situation. Um, so I don't know why he doesn't just step down now instead of going through the formality of this. O'Toole says he will fight to hold his position. In a tweet, he says that he will accept the result of Wednesday's vote, 
but those who signed the petition asking for a change in leadership must live with it as well. We're not seeing what we need to from the leadership right now, uh, but I think when you have leadership uh, with, with vision that unites people, uh, that we're in a very strong uh, position going forward. So what is going to happen going forward? Well, obviously, the vote is going to have to determine an awful lot of that. And uh, there could be some ramifications to that, as uh, we just found out in Kyle's report. Joining us to talk about all this is uh, Stephanie Schwinnard, Associate Professor of Political Science at Royal Military College. Uh, professor, uh, pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the vote itself, and then I want to talk about the piece that you wrote here, which I think is an interesting twist on this. No matter what happens in this vote today, uh, O'Toole has been bruised by this. Is, is, is this a fatal wound? I mean, even if he does survive this vote, I guess the question some people are going to be asking is, yeah, for how long, though? Yeah, it's it's a good question, and it's going to be really hard, I think, for Mr. O'Toole, no matter what the outcome of the vote today, to reunite his caucus. And so on paper, what he needs is 50% plus one of the caucus to vote for him to stay. So that's just over 60 people, essentially. But if there are 49 people in his caucus who vote for him to resign, then what is that going to look like going forward for him? It's going to look like probably a lot of internal mutiny. It's going to look like a leader who won't be able to hold the party line. Uh, and so it, it's going to be untenable, I think, for him. Isn't that part of the problem, though? You just mentioned the party line. Do, do they even know what the party line is? Well, over uh, the course of uh, last weekend, we sure wondered <laughs> what the Conservative yeah. Party line looked like uh, with respect to uh, the, the Freedom Convoy in, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, we've seen Mr. O'Toole be effective at holding a party line. We've seen, you know, one of the historic moments in Parliament uh, just a few weeks ago when uh, there was a unanimous vote on banning conversion therapy. I think that took a lot of people by surprise. It clearly took a bunch of people in the conservative caucus by surprise, but Mr. O'Toole made it happen. So he he is able sometimes to hold the party line, but following this vote, unless he gets an overwhelming majority of caucus behind him, which is not what the reports looked like as of last night, it's going to be, it's going to be really tough for him. Especially because this is driven from inside, right? This is grassroots. It's not, you know, Okay, I guess we have to have a leadership review. The overwhelming majority, the required number of people actually said, yeah, we want it now. We're not going to wait uh, for the next convention, uh, which kind of tells me that, the, the, you know, the, they've already made up their mind. I mentioned earlier this morning, it's kind of like the Spanish Inquisition, you know, where the, you know, the, the condemnation's already in place before the trial even begins. Uh, so he's, he's going to be soiled by this, and you have to wonder who he's going to go. But he did mention something yesterday that I found intriguing, uh, that he said he's been willing to change uh, in some of the policies, if that's what these people want right now. Uh, is that pressure coming from, from the extreme right side of the party? I think Mr. O'Toole saying he's willing to change some policy will have no sway over the folks who have asked for this, uh, for this uh, review to take place sooner than later, quite honestly. Because one of the problems inherent with Mr. O'Toole, as far as these people go, is how much flip-flop he's done since he became leader, right? And we've seen this in uh, how we compare his rhetoric today with his rhetoric when he ran for the leadership. He ran for the, as a true blue candidate and then, you know, took his party uh, much closer to the center than a lot of his candidates were comfortable with during the election. He flip-flopped on the carbon tax, he flip-flopped on, um, on gun control, uh, which are some issues that, quite frankly, he's on side with the majority of Canadians, but he's certainly not on side with the majority of his base. 
on these issues. And so for him at the 23rd hour to say, oh, I'm willing to change my policies if this is what people want in hope that you will keep me in place. I think that comes really, really short of him securing a majority today. I mean, all, all political parties now talk about the big tent. You know, we, we all allow different opinions in our party uh, to a point, as you know, as I've studied political science or as long as you have. Uh, there, there are there are limits to even that. I mean, you've got to toe the line if you're a backbencher, especially. Uh, you know, this is the policy and this is what you're going to do. Um, and those who don't usually don't last too long in caucus, let alone in Ottawa. So there's that element of it, too. But I guess the, the, it's almost like an identity crisis right now. You know, what party are we going to be? Uh, you know, the, the the extreme, extreme right wing from the Conservative Party have probably already gone there. They've gone with Maxine Bernier, I'm sure, over there. And you're right, the, the conflict here seems to be, do we try to nudge a little more to the middle or do we try to placate the people that, you know, still, uh, well, there's a number of them that are out there, uh, Mr. Sloan, Lewis, and a number of others here that, that are trying to tug the party back toward the right right now. And it's it's got to be a very difficult job, I think, for the leader, whoever that might be, either tomorrow or down the line, uh, to try to, to get both sides to, into the same tent. No, I, I think you're absolutely right. And I think Part of the problem with the Conservative Party right now is that they're only seeing as far as where their base allows them to see. And their base right now is concerned that they're bleeding votes to the right. You know, you have it's no coincidence that people like uh, a Candace Bergen and a Michael Cooper were seen supporting the truckers convoy this weekend. If you look at those MPs and the numbers in their writings, they're seeing the, 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 the PPC gain some serious ground. Uh, and they're concerned for their own seats. They're concerned that they're they're losing votes to Maxime Bernier and company. But the problem more generally is that if the conservatives want to get back in power, pandering to the extreme right is not what's going to get them back in government. It's going to be trying to reconcile uh, the, the, the elements of the big tent, but also um, making themselves attractive to um, center-right Canadians who less and less see themselves in the Conservative Party right now are becoming um, political orphans, so to speak. And so if Mr. O'Toole is ousted today and is replaced by someone that swings further to the right, I'm frankly not sure it's going to solve their problem. Well, and let's let's go down that road for just a little bit. It's, it's speculative, we understand that. But if he does lose, there's a number of names that are already being bandied about. You mentioned Candace Bergen just a few minutes ago. Pierre Paulier, of course, is, has been mm-hmm. uh, sniffing around there. He's run for the leadership a couple of different times. Uh, but there's another name here in Ontario, and, and I want to tie this into the piece that you wrote, uh, Professor, uh, about Doug Ford. Uh, the title of the piece, for those who have not seen it yet, is Bonjour, Why Doug Ford is Paying Lip Service to French Speakers. Explain. This, this is uh, something I, I, I bet a lot of people are not too much aware of. Yeah, so this is a piece I actually wrote, uh, you know, a year and a half ago. Uh, and um, you write some some stuff sometimes and you go back and you're like, oh boy, that did not age well. <laughs> but uh, this, piece actually, <laughs> this piece actually held up uh, fairly nicely. So uh, the piece was premised on the fact that after uh, a huge hit uh, that was coming towards the Franco-Ontarian community in the first six months of the Ford government where significant drastic cuts were made to French language services in the in the province. Um, Mr. Ford started to backtrack about a year later, started to talking about learning French, uh, decided to uh, to fund a number of services that had just been announced as being cut, uh, decided to strike a deal with the federal government regarding the Franco-Ontarian University, uh, which is a a whole issue in itself, I know, but uh, still something that was put on the radar. 
And so one of the hypotheses that I was exploring is that Mr. Ford has federal ambitions. Um, however, um, one of the caveats here is that um, the, the cuts that he made to Franco-Ontarian services did not just resonated in Ontario, it resonated throughout all of Canada. If you go back to December 2018, um, there were people out on the streets in places like Regina, Winnipeg, uh, and Montreal uh, in support of Franco-Ontarians for the cuts that, that, had just, that they had just been dealt by Mr. Ford. And so in French Canada, and you know, if you count the 78 seats in Quebec, as well as the pockets of francophones that you find in the rest of the country, that's about 100 seats in the House of Commons. If you count 100 seats out right off the bat for Mr. Ford, because he is not seen as being uh, friendly to French Canadians, generally speaking, then it becomes uh, significantly more difficult for, for him as a future conservative leader to uh, be able to grasp government. Now, it's not to say that Mr. Ford has absolutely no appeal as a possible candidate for the leadership of the CPC. He is uh, someone that has shown that, you know, he's not an, uh, so much an ideologue. Uh, and so because of that, he might be able to unite the different fringes within the Conservative Party. But it would be, it would be a tough job. And as we've seen in recent years, essentially since Mr. Harper left, no, nobody has really been able to do that. No, this, uh, if in fact there is a change today, will be what the third uh, leader in, in the last, I think it's five or six years now. Uh, Mr. Harper, yeah. of course, resigned his, his position, but uh, Andrew Scheer did not work out well. And uh, Mr. O'Toole may suffer the same fate. But as you and I have talked about in the past, though, you know that rumor is going to be out there. And I'm sure Jason Kenney's name is going to come up again. Uh, maybe even Scott Moe, we don't know. Uh, but there's a history here of, of, of premiers of any political stripe, uh, not being very successful when they try to move up to the federal level. That's true. That's true. And that's in part because of regionalism. So, mm -hmm. so you have a, a Doug Ford who's obviously well known in Ontario, but uh, to uh, a base of Western uh, centered conservatives may look very much like the Ontario Laurentian elite, you know, uh, and the same could be said for a Jason Kenney or a Scott Moe who would be seen as pandering too much to Western uh, needs compared to to Eastern uh, Canadians uh, needs and wants. So, uh, so, so there's always that, that one issue. And it's, it's also uh, an internal issue that already exists in the Conservative Party right now, because uh, when you look at the different brands of conservative of conservatism that exist under the big blue tent, uh, there is some regional cleavages there as well. Uh, it's no coincidence that uh, Quebec and Atlantic uh, parts of the caucus are uh, are supporting Mr. O'Toole, whereas uh, a vast majority of the disgruntled ones are coming from out west. Sometimes we're maybe too close to the situation. I mean, here in Ontario, especially, is there a, a resentment, uh, especially if we travel out west, uh, a, a resentment towards Ontario? I mean, there was always, I, I know back in the days of, of, of Pierre Trudeau, uh, you know, let those uh, Eastern bastards freeze was, was one of the key <laughs> phrases. I mean, there's a lot of resentment going on there. Uh, is that, has that been tempered or is there still some resentment there that, yeah, that those Ontario types, they don't want to have anything to do with them. Yeah. I mean, it's always the case that Ontario is seen as believing it's, you know, uh, the center of the universe and, uh, that people in Ottawa are too Ottawa centric. 
but we also see a lot of resentment towards Quebec in, in Western Canada. And someone mm -hmm. like Jason Kenney uh, has definitely played that card time and time again when we talk about, you know, reviewing the equalization payment formula, for example. Uh, that's that's an easy one to get his base riled up. Uh, so so um, central Canada, generally speaking, yes, it, it, it does resonate uh, in a uh, in a uh, not so positive way uh, in in Western Canada, generally speaking. With that in mind, then, <laughs> does anybody jump to the fore? I mean, because let's face it, especially some of the people in the caucus, but every caucus, I think probably, they've all got baggage. That's very true. And I find uh, very interesting that Mr. Poiliev seems to be, you know, uh, getting his ducks in a row to, uh, to, to, to get into the leadership race, because if someone has baggage on Parliament Hill, it's definitely him. And while uh, the likes of him and Leslie Lewis are wildly popular with the conservative base, I think they would be seen by uh, a majority of Canadians as an unpalatable choice for, uh, for a future prime minister. Uh, for in part because of their views on, on social issues, where um, the uh, the morally conservative part of the conservative base um, is very powerful within the party, and they're extremely uh, good at raising funds for the party, among other things. So it gives them a, a special kind of standing under the big blue tent, but they are not representative of the majority of Canadians. And as we keep seeing election after election, those are important cleavages that can make or break a leader. Um, so, so, so there's there's an important choice there for the conservative base to be made, uh, and uh, it's going to be interesting to see where they go. And the voters are pretty discerning, though, aren't they, Professor? I mean, we've seen this happen time and time again. I mean, you know, back in the early 2000s, I mean, uh, the country got pretty tired of the liberals and uh, put them in the penalty box for about 10 years. Uh, you know, they just have this mindset that, no, we're not going down that road. Uh, it certainly happened here in Ontario with, the, the, the as you mentioned in your piece, the Mike Harrison, the Common Sense Revolution. You know, they, again, okay, these guys get shoved to the side. We've only got two choices instead of three. That can happen uh, if you're not careful about exactly what kind of path you choose here as a party. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, Canadians deserve to have a serious choice of different parties to lead the country. Uh, and so I personally do not see at all uh, in a good eye the fact that the official opposition is imploding right now, uh, ideologically speaking. I think we need uh, an official opposition that can hold the government to account, who is in realistical terms uh, a party that a majority of Canadians could see as being a government in waiting. Uh, and, and if uh, the Conservative Party of Canada decides to go down uh, the uh, further right route, uh, then I, I think we're going to become further and further away from, from being that kind of choice for a majority of Canadians. And so I am concerned for, for the, the health of our democracy at this point. It's always great to get your perspective on this, Professor, but uh, you've got a class to teach, so we'll let you go. Uh, and uh, hopefully we can talk about uh, some of the new developments on this uh, a little bit later on. Thanks again so much for the time today, though. Thanks for having me. Have a good one. You too. Professor Stephanie Chouinard, uh, of course, Professor of Political Science at uh, Royal Military College. And and to her point, I mean, the, there are ramifications to this. I mean, you know, political parties can stumble and voters can hold them accountable and the voters can actually hold grudges too uh, for the longest time. And uh, especially when you look at the situation like this about which way the party is going to go. And, and there are, are legitimate arguments uh, within the party as to which way they do want to go. Uh, 
but you know the voters are going to have one perception the political parties may ha oftentimes have another perception as to who the best person to lead this party is going to be and and we have to consider all of the alternatives here and one of them is that Aaron O'Toole stays and we don't know the results of the vote just yet i mean we've talked about all the turmoil and the infighting that this has caused uh, but at the end of the day, there may be some people within that caucus that said, yeah, I'm not crazy about this guy, but, you know, what, what's going to happen if we vote him down? I mean, where do we go from there? So, uh, you know, he may be the choice for them, uh, not necessarily because he's the best choice, but they don't want to go down that road of conflict. And uh, and what could happen? I mean, it would mean another leadership convention, right? Uh, and, uh, and, of course, another leadership vote. And this is a minority parliament. And as uh, Professor Schwinnard said, you want a, a, an opposition that's going to hold the government accountable on some pretty key issues that are going to be coming up instead of being, shall we say, more in, in, interested in and, and maybe uh, focusing more on a leadership uh, situation for their party than uh, doing their job in Parliament Hill. So we're not sure. I, I, I know I saw some speculation on social media yesterday that if, in fact, there is a conservative leadership, uh, you know, does the government pull a plug and call a snap election? Not going to happen. I, I just don't see that going at all. Uh, there may be a, 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 a smidgen of, of political sense to that, but I think the, the Canadian voters would, would really push back on any government that tried to pull the plug in a situation like this. We've got a long way to go and a lot of work to do. And I think the message we got and I think the message we sent to our, our politicians in the last election uh, late last year was get to work, you know, quit the infighting. Uh, we just want you to get this country back on track. And we're not there yet. There's a lot of way, you know, the, the pandemic and the ramifications of the pandemic uh, are so, so much on the, on the fore right now. And they're, they're having influence on just about everything. You're listening to the Bill Kelly show podcast on 900 CHML. This story just was very, very disturbing as I got more details about this and then they're slowly but surely coming out. Uh, about uh, Brian Flores. Brian Flores is the former uh, head coach of the Miami Dolphins of the National Football League. Uh, the short version of this is he's suing both the, uh, the National Football League and three teams, the Dolphins, the Broncos, and the Giants, uh, uh, because of, oh, as his explanation goes, some incredibly racially slanted behavior. Uh, Jennifer King has some details, and then we'll get into a conversation. Brian Flores was fired by the Miami Dolphins last month. Now he's filed a lawsuit in Manhattan Federal Court seeking damages against the NFL, the Dolphins, the Denver Broncos, and the New York Giants. The lawsuit alleges that the league discriminated against Flores and other black coaches, denying them top positions and creating a segregated system to profit from the labor of NFL players. Pittsburgh's Mike Tomlin is currently the league's only black head coach. The lawsuit alleges Flores was treated badly by Dolphins owner Stephen Ross after he refused an offer for $100,000 a game to tank during his first season to secure the top draft pick. Flores claims he was forced to sit through sham interviews with the Broncos and the Giants so that the teams could appear to conform to the Rooney rule created to give more opportunities for minority candidates. In a statement released by his attorneys, Flores says the need for change was bigger than his personal goals and that in filing the class action complaint, he hopes others will join him in standing up to systemic racism in the NFL. The league says the claims are without merit. I'm Jennifer King. Well, uh, just when you think there's some progress being made, I guess, uh, a story like this uh, rears its ugly head, and uh, the implications of this uh, are severe. Joining us to talk about this is Dr. Richard Norman. Uh, Dr. Norman is a postdoctoral fellow with the Future of Sport Research Lab at Ryerson University. Uh, doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Variations on the theme. I mean, as I read more details about some of the allegations, and we do we need to remind our listeners these are only allegations at this stage. Uh, but this is a rather ugly scenario, isn't it? Uh, definitely. Um, 
not necessarily so surprising, particularly I think in the the NFL, um, which you know related to uh, sorry in relation to other leagues doesn't necessarily have the best track record related to racialized persons or you know the the ways that discrimination might um, uh, be manifesting. Well, and there's the history. What was it just a week or so ago? Uh, we up here anyway. Uh, we're celebrating uh, Chuck Healy, the former Hamilton Tiger Cat, and well, Toronto Argonne quarterback for a little while anyway, uh, for being uh, inducted into the uh, College Football Hall of Fame down there. But it reminded us of Chuck Healy's story. Uh, he came to Canada after an incredibly successful uh, college career, never lost a game in college, uh, because he was a black quarterback, and the chances of him playing in the NFL in 1971 were slim and none. Warren Moon did the exact same thing until he established himself up here. So that that barrier has been there for quite some time, hasn't it? Uh, definitely. And I think it's interesting because I think um, it's the anniversary of Doug Williams uh, being the first yeah. black um, you know, quarterback to, to be in the Super Bowl as well. But uh, there is a history of, of Canadian uh, football being this, uh, this conduit for you know, having black quarterbacks that don't normally get those same opportunities uh, within the American system to, um, you know, to basically showcase their skills. And again, this comes back to some sort of old historical stereotyping of, you know, the black quarterback is athletic, um, but not necessarily strategic and not able to use an intellect to, I don't know, break apart defenses and, and whatnot. It's more based on raw talent. So, um, you know, I, I remember watching Warren Moon and, you know, in his days here in the CFL. And, uh, you know, it's interesting that, you know, after a, an illustrious career here, he was able then to go on to, you know, back to the NFL and have a, you know, a career there as well. Well, he won the Rose Bowl. I mean, as Washington State quarterback, and he had a, a great career. But again, you know, the, the possibilities were limitless. By the way, quick asterisk to this: the first black uh, quarterback to play football was it was Bernie Custis for the Hamilton Tigers uh, way back when in the nineteen fifties, and it was just last year that the National Football League, with a Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, finally recognized that fact that Bernie Custis was the first black quarterback. And uh, uh, something that uh, I know the Tiger Cats in this city are pretty proud of. But uh, the history here of, of the National Football League and their their treatment, uh, especially of people of color, uh, I know they've tried to, to work on this. We mentioned in the report there, uh, Doctor, about the, uh, the Rooney Rule. That's basically uh, from Art Rooney, the former Pittsburgh Steelers owner, who basically said, look, you know, we've got to open the door. And the rule, for those who don't understand, is uh, if you're uh, interviewing for either a coaching job or a general manager's job, you have to at least talk to at least one person of color, uh, which seems to me an awful lot like a quota system, but that's the rule, I guess. Uh, and what he's asserting here is that uh, the two interviews that he who went through, uh, one with Denver and then with the Giants most recently, uh, he was the token person of color to be interviewed before they could move ahead and hire the person they really wanted to. It's, it's a, a pretty strong assertion, but, but there's a body of evidence that indicates that may well be the case. Yeah, I think that there is that evidence. Um, so it's not, you know, it's not uh, beyond reason to say that actually he has a very strong case for those kinds of uh, claims of discrimination. Um, you know, a couple of things occur to me. The first is that it, we we don't realize how much the narratives that we carry associated with um, you know, sport and the sport cultures, um, how much they inform some of the policy decisions, but more importantly, the behaviors within those organizations. And for example, so the idea of the black quarterback, 
um, you know, as, as being some, something of an anomaly and the same for a black head coach. Um, and then if you take a look at what the Rooney Report actually does, it sort of sets up guidelines that then have to be adhered to by each of the teams. And this becomes this sort of friction between, you know, national uh, you know, or governing bodies dictating rules and regulations. But then the implementation has to happen on the team organization. And if you take a look at the structures of who they are, well, what's the ownership look like? And so then you start to do a little deeper dive into the administration and sort of, you know, where are the, you know, the value you know, statements that support hiring of, you know, racialized folks, you know, into a system that doesn't necessarily want them there. So I, I think that you have to ask some really deeper questions about, you know, does the really Rooney rule as a policy really the way to change the behaviors that are going on within the cultures of the organizations that they're set to, you know, change? Well, it, it, exactly, because there seems to be uh, stronger evidence that the Rooney rule is in place basically to let the teams off the hook to say, hey, we tried, you know, the, the, the individuals just, just didn't match up. Uh, and it, it's it's. It's a backward way of doing it. I can understand that as a good first step, but they haven't done anything about it since then. And the fact that, as the, the report mentioned, Mike Tomlin from the Steelers is the only black head coach in the league right now uh, indicates that, uh, that you know, there's a mindset that has to be overcome. And even uh, I know Lovey Smith coached the Bengals there for a couple of years, a few years ago as well. But it, it's you're right. It becomes a story. Oh, there's a black head coach. The same thing happens in baseball. Uh, they very rarely give uh, people of color an opportunity to manage. It's getting a little bit better, but uh, as as Mr. Flores here uh, talks about in his lawsuit here, Doctor, uh, they recycle white coaches all the time. You know, you can get fired from a job in, in Denver and get hired the next week for a job down in Miami, for instance, uh, but black people don't get those opportunities. Uh, there's there's like this body of, okay, let's these are the recycled coaches uh, that we're going to go for all the time, and we always just pick from one of those. And, and, oh, yeah, we have to interview a person of color just to make like we're going through the, the proper process. Uh, I, I can understand how he feels victimized. And I got to figure there's a, a, probably an awful lot more people out there that have probably gone through the same situation. Yeah, I, I can't agree strongly enough. I mean, for me, it's, I think, more acute when you take a look at the coaching you know, situation in the NFL. But the same thing cascades through almost all the professional leagues. And there is a real question of, you know, head coaching, but the administration that supports them. I mean, take a look at basketball and how many, you know, black GMs and presidents do you have? Well, so, you know, I think that there's a there's some really deeper questions about, um, you know, how are we going to, you know, shift these kinds of conversations and the narratives that support, um, you know, a, basically a white centric way of, um, of of administering and, you know, uh, coaching teams. And again, when you go back to the NFL, if you take a look at the, you know, the player um, demographics and you have, you know, 70% of the players are black, but you have one head coach. Well, there's a real, you know, discontinuity between, you know, the experiences of the players and, you know, how they're going to relate to the head coach and even the coaching staff, because, you know, the head coach is only one aspect of a really complicated and, and you know, robust system to help support those athletes. So, uh, you know, Yes, the NFL probably has a more acute problem and it's more visible, but I think that those same questions can be asked in most of the professional leagues. So how do you how do you develop a, a, a conversation about this? Because clearly, uh, and I'm sure this is going to be their official response and their legal response too, is they, we didn't do anything wrong here. 
in other words, try to be dismissive of this whole thing and kind of sweep it under the carpet. Uh, but but Flory's lawsuit here is is uh, there's so much here uh, to unpack, but it, it seems so viable uh, to to go through some of these situations. And uh, the the giant story for people who may not know the story that was the one that was just uh, a couple of weeks ago now. Uh, where he was supposed to get interviewed for that job. And Bill Belichick, the the New England coach, actually uh, texted him, I guess, or tweeted, congratulating him because he heard – well, he was actually – it was a mistake because he sent it to the wrong guy. Uh, and and it was the the Buffalo coach that eventually got the Giants job that uh, was supposed to be directed to him. But it kind of indicated uh, that he got the text before he even went to the interview. Uh, and, and Belichick thought he was talking to the other guy and said, congratulations, you got the gig, which tells me the Giants already made up their mind about who they're going to hire – uh, before Flores even interviewed for the job. Absolutely. And and I don't think that his claims are, are baseless. Um, and I think they probably go deeper than, you know, even he is willing to admit. I mean, when I looked at the, you know, the actual report and his, um, uh, you know, and his classification of the kinds of discrimination that happening, one of the biggest things is, is that he's now been labeled difficult. And I think that that is actually um, I won't call it the mark of death, but very close for, you know, black head coaches. And, and because of the, the relationship between head coaches and owners, um, you know, that needs to be really, you know, a strong uh, a bond. Otherwise, they won't get the support. So, I mean, to, in, in my, um, from my perspective, when I take a look at what really needs to change until the value of uh, racialized uh, people being part of that coaching and the, you know, the administration and the management of those teams, then I don't think much is going to change. And, you know, we can, you know, create all the policy you want, but if it's not actually going to change behavior, then there's a question about, you know, how, how much emphasis can we put on these rules and regulations of really, you know, shifting the cultures that, you know, exist within these professional leagues. But that's the big stick that uh, that professional teams carry over an individual like Flores or, or anybody else, isn't it, doctor? You know, play ball with us or, or you know, you, we're going to blackball you. That's essentially what it comes down to. Uh, you know, he, the Miami owner who apparently started, you know, using this label as this guy's hard to, to work with and hard to deal with because Flores refused to throw games. Uh, you know, because they wanted the number one draft pick. If he wanted them to lose the number of games of the season, and he refused to do that. And he ended up you know, a, a bad vibe, I guess, and bad blood between the owner. Uh, so you either do what they say and, and jump when they say jump, or we're going to make sure that you don't work in this league anymore. That, that's that's the message there, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, there's obviously a precedent for that, particularly in the NFL. I mean, we just have to look at Colin Kaepernick. Anybody yeah. who's going to question the, you know, the internal... Um, you know, validity and, and of you know, how the system works to exclude, you know, racialized persons, you know, gaining those is positions of power. Well, then, you know, I, I think that a life of the lawsuit is brought forward to sort of try to help direct some attention to it, then uh, more power to them. Um, I guess my question would be, you know, is that really going to you know, reshape uh, this configuration that the league has, you know, with a league doing one thing, owners deciding, you know, uh, in, in another capacity. And I think that that is one of the differences between the NFL. I mean, the power of the owners to actually dictate how the league operates and, you know, the, the, the internal mechanisms are, are unprecedented within the professional uh, world of sport, I think. 
Well, I mean, I've been around long enough to remember some of these quote-unquote precedents. Uh, I think when you and I talked a while ago, we talked about Willie O'Ree, of course, uh, getting his number retired by the Boston Bruins, and uh, he's going to get the Congressional Medal of Honor. That's probably about 30 years too late, but at least it's happening. Uh, I remember Frank Robinson being the first black baseball manager to be hired by the Indians in 1975. Uh, and we can go on and on with some of these first, but the reality is, and I guess the tragedy here, Doctor, is here we are in 2022, and, and we're still talking about incremental growth, if there's any growth at all. We should have been much better at this by now, and we're not. Yeah, and, and I think that, you know, it's interesting because I think football, uh, from the Canadian context, isn't such a, a national sport in the way that it is America. There really is, you know, a religion associated. If you take a look at the NFL, um, the connection it has to the armed forces and the you know ideas and notions of patriotism, it's something that isn't necessarily carried over in the Canadian context. So, you know, again, we go back to this idea of how do we shift things? And I have to remember that there is a huge infrastructure that supports uh, the pipeline of players to get to the NFL. And I think that, you know, there's still questions to be asked at the minor levels, at the collegiate levels, and how, you know, how those power dynamics still inform, um, you know, the sort of uh, marginalization of racialized coaches um, and, you know, uh, managerial positions as well. So again, we come back to this, like, well, where do we put our attention? Is it really at the professional level or do we have to look at, you know, the role of community sport and how that actually supports these grand narratives that no, in fact, you know, black coaches aren't as good as white coaches. And, and if the bar that they set is, well, show us that you can do this, uh, which is, I know is, 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 if not the stated, at least it's the implied uh, direction from some people, you know, well, show because that's what black quarterbacks said to do, show that you can be a winner. And maybe we'll start looking at more black quarterbacks. Uh, the only guy who's left right now is Mike Tomlin from the Pittsburgh Steelers. He's won Super Bowls. Uh, he's been a champion. He's won division titles. And what level of success are they looking for before they can understand that there's, you know, there's, there's talent there and, and the color of the skin should not be a determining factor in hiring or firing? Well, I think that that just points to the double standard, you know, so if you're a, a black head coach or, you know, even, you know, a black professional at the highest levels in your own industry, the level and the burden of, you know, showing your capability, um, it, you know, far outweighs the need to fulfill that role. And I, you know, I can see it time and time again. And even in the research that I have done, you know, talking to CEOs of companies, um, you know, also related to sport that the, you know, they had to overperform in those positions just to be taken seriously um, in the types of initiatives that they wanted to bring forward. So I think that the challenge is, yes, get the job. But then if you have to, you know, overperform outside of even your skill set just to maintain that position, then there are some fundamental narratives that are going on within the administration that aren't really designed for you to succeed. And then those are the things that we have to start to interrogate. Well, and, and Flores, I guess, is a great example of that. I mean, when he was coaching the Dolphins, uh, he had back-to-back -back winning seasons for the first time since 2003. The Dolphins have not been a very successful franchise of late. Uh, and, and, and he brought them some level of success, and you would have thought that that should have been a, a determining factor. But I guess if you get that label of, oh, you know, you're hard to work with and you, you, you don't, you know, play ball with, the, with the, the team owner when it comes to throwing games, uh, the record doesn't matter then, does it? No, I don't really think it does. And, you know, I think that, you know, that's part of his, his um, 
you know, allegations in some of the commentary that I was reading about it is just this fact that like, I am a successful, you know, head coach. I shouldn't have to prove myself yet again and again, um, you know, the powers that be within the league, you know, are requiring me to, you know, again, overperform, go above and beyond just to secure my position. Um, and I think that that speaks throughout the coaching system and, you know, it's not just the head coach, but if you take a look, defensive coordinators and offensive coordinators and so on and so forth, it's the same, you know, burden that, you know, as a racialized person, you have to show that you're not just capable, but you're better than in multiple ways. I, I know people are going to draw the comparison and we're just about out of time here with Canadian Football League too. And, and, and there seems to be a much more open-minded approach to this uh, with the number of black coaches in the Canadian team. It's only a nine-team league, but I mean, that there are a number of black coaches and, and other uh, indicates uh, that uh, that there's a, a, probably a, a much different attitude up here. Well, and we can relate that back to, our, I guess, the beginning of our discussion about black quarterbacks too. But uh, there's a long way to go. The lawsuit is important. I don't know what's going to happen with that. As we mentioned, these are just allegations. But what's more important, I think, here, Doctor, is there's, there's got to be a, a, a discussion uh, about the attitudes, uh, especially when it comes to, as you mentioned, it's not just sports, but 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 the corporate world as well. Uh, about segregation that may not be a front page story anymore, but it's still very much there. Uh, and there are very few people that, that, that speak out about this. And I, I, I congratulate Brian Flores for, for having the courage to be able to do this. We'll see where this goes. And hopefully it's going to uh, be the catalyst for that kind of discussion. Yeah, I hope so. And I mean, look, even you bring this uh, as, as an issue within your, uh, in your media field, I think is an important step as well. I mean, um, it's going to take multiple fronts to sort of combat these overarching narratives that you know really permeate not only through sport, but our whole society. So, you know, I'm not going to say that change is going to be quick. Um, I think there's lots of measures that we can, you know, really look forward to um, as, as positive steps. Um, and, you know, within the Canadian context, we're not so litigious, but, you know, bringing a class action lawsuit within the Canadian context may be also something that uh, people have to consider just to move it things It may forward. well happen, yeah. Uh, Doctor, yeah. we're going to have to leave it there for now, but thank you so much as always for your input. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Dr. Richard Norman, of course, from uh, Ryerson University. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.